The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let the church of Jesus Christ say, Amen. Amen. Last week, we kicked off a four-week preaching series that we're calling Gone Fishing, and really, church, it's all Jesus' fault. In our gospel reading last week, Jesus called his first set of four students, his first four disciples, and in the reading, he found all four of them busy doing the work of fishing. Simon and Andrew were fixing their nets, James and John were literally still in the boat with their dad, and Jesus shows up and invites them to come and be his disciples, promising that if they stick close to him, they will learn how to fish for people. And so with that metaphor of fishing for people in mind, we're preaching through the assigned gospel readings for the next few weeks, gone fishing. Now, church, I took the liberty this week of doing a bit of research and then writing down a quick list of some fishing techniques and fishing equipment that I could find. And as it turns out, the list I compiled is also a fairly complete list of fishing terms I know nothing about. Here's the list I came up with, Josh. Let me read some of these, just so good. Gaff, hook set, sniggle, pellet waggler, dead sticking, gigging, ice jigger, eel buck, putcher fishing, muro ami, topwater lure, short floating, chod rig, vermicompost, spoon plug, trot line, chinavala, trout binning, trout tickling, lampara net, salambau, ghost net, jug fishing, cast net, spinner bait, little cleo, clonk, trabuco, otter fishing, snagging, sand sinker, lamp, pookie net, glass floats. Somebody out there today, I know it, is seriously nodding along and saying, oh yeah, short floating. <laughs> They're saying this other way, you just can't trust a guy who doesn't short float 18 inches from the bottom, you know. Somebody else out there, someone who knows a lot about fishing, didn't even crack a smile at trout tickling, because you take your trout tickling seriously, but church, I've got to tell you, the fact that you can rub the bottom of a trout and put it into a trance so that you can make it easier to capture is bonkers to me. Suffice it to say, church, I don't know very much about fishing, but I admit to you, I find it fascinating. There is something ancient and primal about humans going to the seas and rivers and lakes in search of food, and there's something wondrous about the ingenuity of the human mind to create better tools to make that job easier and more successful. In the Gospel reading last week, Jesus compares life in God's kingdom, life following after Jesus to fishing, and that got me curious. Like, in looking at this list of terms, what terms on this list would Jesus have been familiar with? Like, when he calls fishermen to follow him, how would they have been fishing? And if we take this list, and if we remove all of the terms which post-date the first century CE and Jesus' world of fishing and fishermen, we're left with this. Cast nets. Cast net fishing was the normative mode of fishing in Jesus' day. But church, I've got to ask you, what do you know about cast net fishing? I mean, I didn't know much at all until I spent a bit of time watching YouTube videos of people showing how to fish with cast nets. And I've got to tell you, it was time well spent. 
A cast net is a large fishing net, perhaps 8, 9, 10, 15 feet across sometimes, whose edges have little weights attached all around them so that the net sinks down when it hits the water. The sinking net is then pulled closed, capturing whatever fish are caught within. And the trick of cast net fishing is that it's really, really tricky to hurl the net into the water. You've got to wrap it up a certain way so when you throw it, it unfurls to its largest diameter before hitting the water and sinking down. Expert cast net fishermen are a joy to watch because it looks so cool. Take a look at this guy and watch how excited he and his off-camera wife are at their successful cast net experience when, in addition to catching some mullet to use for bait, they also managed to catch two 20-pound Jack Craval. Listen, check this video out. What's up, everybody? Boom game. As you can see, we're gonna go set some blue crab traps. But first, we need to get bait. Anytime you're throwing a cast net, always get it wet first. I haven't thrown it yet. I just dumped it in the water. There's a big school of silver mullet right here and I need them for bait. So we're gonna catch them and then we're gonna go set some traps. So I put it in my mouth. And I take my right hand and I start loading it just like that until I get about half the net. Whoa! Oh! Oh! A feather! Oh! You better hurry up! I got Ooh. him! I got the jack! Oh my gosh! I got him, babe! Jeez! Two of them! How epic is that? What? <laughs> <laughs> That's a YouTube moment and a half right oh there! Oh my gosh! What are the odds of that? Holy moly! Tell me that wasn't the YouTube gods asking. That was. <laughs> Oh my. How does it even, that's a YouTube video right there. So Literally. We're already done, we can go home. Oh my gosh. I just straight up caught a 20 pound river donkey. Two of them. There's two in there. Ah! Oh my gosh, what? That, I How can't. does that even, ha that never happens for us. What? And we got all this mullet splashing. All the mullet we need in one cast and two giant jacks. And guess what? We haven't even left the boat ramp. <laughs> Here's our thumbnail. <laughs> oh my gosh. Look at that, one cast. All the bait I need and two jacks. <laughs> I bet the jack. What's all right, up? all right. Cast net fishing. Uh, it's an ancient thing, it's a modern thing, and it is still quite cool to watch happen. It should go without saying that with cast net fishing, the larger the net, uh, the more fish you can potentially catch at once. The net might be more awkward and difficult to throw, and the fish-laden net might be more difficult to haul in by yourself, but the potential payoff is worth it. Just ask that guy in the video. Now, church, when Jesus called his first four disciples away from their nets and their boats, they were cast net fishermen. Their days were spent preparing their nets, wrapping their nets, casting their nets, hauling in their nets, emptying their nets, and repairing their nets to do it again and again 
And again, this is what fishermen did in Jesus' day. They didn't trawl around the Sea of Galilee, and they did not use a rod and a reel to single target large tuna or anything like that. They just cast their nets out into the water. Today's gospel reading comes from the first 12 verses of Matthew's fifth chapter, the opening verses in a three-chapter section of Matthew's gospel that we traditionally call the Sermon on the Mount. Why do we call it the Sermon on the Mount? Well, first, uh, because in, for three chapters, Jesus is doing all of the talking. It's a long monologue of Jesus, hence we use the term sermon. And secondly, because right at the outset, right in verse 1, we learn that in order to deliver this monologue, this teaching, this sermon, he has climbed up to an elevated place, a high place, a mountain. And from there, he's going to teach his disciples an outline of what life in God's kingdom is like. The Sermon on the Mount is Matthew, the gospel writer's way of comparing Jesus to Moses, as if to say, hey, readers, you remember how Moses climbed up Mount Sinai and heard the revelation of God and relayed it to the people. Well, look, 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 Jesus is climbing up a mountain to dispense revelation of God to the people. And let me be candid. The Sermon on the Mount is the single greatest summary in the Bible of what God's kingdom is like. It's a fabulous summary of who God's kingdom welcomes and how followers of Jesus, citizens of that kingdom, are supposed to behave and act now that the kingdom has begun to arrive. Let me be even more bold. At the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, the very last thing Jesus says is he tells a parable about a wise builder and a foolish builder, both who build houses, but the wise one builds it on a rocky foundation as opposed to a sandy foundation. And when the storm comes, the foolishly built house on sand collapses while the wisely built house on rock endures. And Jesus says, those who hear my words and put it into practice are wise builders. Those who just hear my word and don't do anything are foolish and their houses will collapse when the storms come. All that is to say, if you are looking for a quick overview of what Jesus taught, of what Jesus uh, understood life in God's kingdom to look like, if you need a quick Cliff's Note version of all of the Gospels about Jesus' teachings, it's right here in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. This is mandatory reading for any Christian, mandatory reading for any church looking to live out the way of Jesus in the world. This is where we get to figure out how we're supposed to get along with one another and how we're supposed to give our stuff away and how to pray and so forth. It's not easy to understand all the time. It's not clear all the time how to apply it, but it is nevertheless the single best summary of Jesus's vision for life in God's kingdom that we get in all the Gospels. And today we're standing at the beginning. Our boat hasn't even left the boat dock yet. But today we're going to listen as Jesus begins to teach his disciples about God's kingdom. And right away at the very top of the sermon, the very, very beginning, after he has said the word of the Lord, or after he has, he has said the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord endures forever, Jesus starts out not with a clever personal anecdote or a story from his growing up years or a silly YouTube video, but Jesus begins his sermon about life in God's kingdom with a list of nine blessings. A list of blessed bees, 
a list that characterizes the sort of people who have been welcomed into the kingdom of God. Who is considered blessed in God's kingdom? Whose experiences are validated and normalized in God's kingdom? Jesus tells us straight away in these Beatitudes, as we call them. The Beatitudes are a list of nine types of experiences that are considered valid and real and to whom Jesus extends his hands of blessing. Nine categories of human experience, nine seasons of our humanity, if you were, to which Jesus holds out a hand of blessing, naming and validating those experiences not, as not only authentic, but also as holy and blessed. Here they are. The poor in spirit, people who are grieving, the meek and powerless, people who are starving for righteousness, people who show mercy, people who are pure in heart, people who make peace, people who are targeted and persecuted, people who are reviled and hated because of Jesus. The kingdom is theirs, Jesus says. They will see God, Jesus says. They will inherit the earth, Jesus says. They will be satisfied and comforted and forgiven and called God's children. It's a rather remarkable list. And right at the beginning of a sermon devoted to what God's kingdom is like, Jesus begins with a list of nine kinds of life experiences that are welcomed and called blessed by Jesus. And this, I think, sets the agenda for everything else that follows. God's kingdom project for this world welcomes and blesses those who are at life's extremes. Those who are not on top of things. Those for whom life is not neat and orderly. The Beatitudes may not be describing nine different types of people, but rather nine different seasons of life in which we here might find ourselves. We might be here and we are grieving and we are wondering, seriously wondering, is there any comfort to be found? We might be reading the reports from Memphis about the shocking and brutal murder of Tyree Nichols this weekend, and we might find ourselves hungering and thirsting and starving for righteousness and justice in our police departments and on our streets. We, we may be striving to make peace in our families or between our friends only to feel like everything we do is just futile and pointless. We may feel like our Christian faith is leading us to be wary of the greedy or corrupt institutions in our workplaces, and maybe we've witnessed a coworker being mistreated or hurt by others, but to speak out, to do what is right, might mean that we lose our job too. We might be out of work for a while, and we feel like we no longer have any agency. We have no power. We have no ambition, no direction anymore. Our meekness and lack of upward mobility is causing us to be crushed by debt, and we don't know what to do. We come to this list, and we find that Jesus does not give us answers to these dilemmas. Rather, he gives us promises. He does promise that that feeling of being crushed in our spirits will not last forever, and that we'll not have the last word. He, he promises that people who are grieving will find comfort, and people who are presently powerless will one day inherit the earth. 
He promises that the ache in our guts when we read reports of brutality and rage and see mothers weeping for their murdered sons will one day be assuaged and that the desire for what is right will be realized. And in saying these words, in blessing these experiences, in making these promises, Jesus is casting the nets of the kingdom out wide to catch as many people as possible. And even though there is not one single reference to fishing in this passage, I think that Jesus is continuing the fishing lesson. Follow me and I'll show you how to fish for people. Well, here's an important lesson then. Fishing for people is not rod and reel fishing. It is not target single target fishing for a single enormous bass in the lake. Kingdom fishing is about learning to cast a wide net with a fine mesh that catches all sorts of people in all sorts of experiences. Kingdom fishing is about bringing the biggest, widest net we can find, one that does not predetermine what kind of fish will end up in it. Kingdom fishing carefully coils up the promises of God in Scripture, the stories of God's promises to love and forgive and to heal and to reconcile and to start over and to make peace and to renew and to rescue and to save. Every part of this net is another story of Scripture. Every example, another example of God's presence in times of darkness and pain. And the fisherman disciple hurls that net out over the dark waters of the world and lets those promises of God sink down into the depths before starting to pull the net in. The mission of the church is to be those who cast a wide net with a fine mesh, who weekly in worship and acts of, and our acts of mission hurl those nets out into the waters of our city to remind folks who are poor in spirit, those who are grieving, those who are starving for righteousness, that the kingdom blessings of God are theirs too. Every Sunday, we come together here in this sanctuary to gather up those nets of God's kingdom just so, so that we can go out from this place to keep doing what Jesus is already doing and has been doing for the past 2,000 years, to hurl those nets of God's promises out upon the water and to call people who are presently at life's extremes and to tell them that they are blessed and cherished and loved in God's kingdom as well. I watched an interview with a professional cast net fisherman who was instructing a group of students how to do it and he warned them that you really need to check the size of your nets and know what you're trying to catch before casting them. He told them that the finer the mesh of the nets, the smaller the gap between the lines, the more likely uh, that you're going to catch things that will make hauling in the net impossible for one person. Well, I've got good news and I've got bad news for we who hear these Beatitudes today. The nets of God's kingdom are enormous and are incredibly fine. They are cast out into a world and are dragging in them all sorts of people and experiences and ambitions and hopes and fears. And we look around and we see so many people, some who look like us, but far more who do not. Some who agree with us, but far more who do not. But we're all caught up with Jesus in his kingdom net. And so I am glad, church, that the fisherman casting these nets is strong enough to haul in the whole catch. Because left to me, I would be far more judicious. I would predetermine exactly who I think fits the bill and who does not. 
So I am glad that our Savior Christ is the one doing the fishing. I'm glad that he is infinitely able to do what I am presently unable to do. I'm glad to be in a church praising a God whose power and love and forgiveness is so great that he has cast his nets out into the dark depths of human experience and is drawing all of us here along with all who would hear into the kingdom waters. I'm glad to praise a God who can handle all of my sin and my error-prone ways, a God who knows all of my grief and all of my shame, and who nonetheless places his hand upon me and says, Blessed are you too. Church, might we, like our Lord, cast our nets far and wide and deep, and let us use the finest mesh nets we can find so that we might look into the eyes of the hurting and the sorrowful and give to them the blessings of Christ. I speak to you in the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let the Church of Christ say, Amen. Thanks for listening this week. The First Presbyterian Church of Flint is an historic downtown congregation proudly part of the Presbyterian Church USA, the largest Presbyterian denomination in the United States. You can learn more about us at fpcf.org. You can check out our weekly live stream broadcasts on our channel on YouTube. But better yet, you can stop by any Sunday at 10.30 a.m. to worship with us. We would love to welcome you and your family to worship. Have a great week.